0: Welcome everyone, I'm your host, Emerson Green. This is from a panel discussion I participated in about miracles. It was three miracle skeptics and one theist, Caleb Jackson, who you may know from his defense of the argument for miracles, so major respect to Caleb for willing to be the only defender of miracles on a four-person panel. We covered a lot of interesting ground, we talked about Hume, the role miracles play and why people are religious, analyzing the class or category of miraculous events, as opposed to individual miraculous events, the non-random selection of data in this area, as in the filtered delivery of miracle stories. We also talk about what would convince us that a genuine miracle had occurred, why people don't try to heal amputees, whether we should expect genuine miracles to only occur within the context of one religion. I was surprised by Caleb's answer here. And we also talked about epistemology more generally. I also wanted to thank the patrons who support the podcast, you can support the show at patreon.com counter or slash So without further ado, here's a conversation about the argument from miracles.
1: All right, we are live, guys. Hey everyone, my name's Gabriel. Uh, This is my first time doing this, so don't expect it to be super polished, but uh, I'm interested in kind of uh, apologetics, philosophy, religion stuff, more from a critical perspective. Used to be a Christian, and I got some fellow peeps here from differing perspectives, and we're gonna talk about miracles a little bit here. So hopefully you guys enjoy the conversation, and uh, um, if we wanna start with Emerson, work our way around, you guys wanna do any sort of small introductions, anything you got going on?
0: Sure. So I've got a YouTube channel called Emerson Green, and that's where I post my podcast episodes. Um, I have counter apologetics, which is, you know, what it sounds like. And I also have Walden Pod, where I talk about sort of my non-philosophy of religion interests. But yeah, I'm excited to talk about miracles, because it's not something that I've cared a whole lot about historically. But yeah, and we can get into kind of what got me here. It was actually partially the TV show Midnight Mass, but um, yeah, we can get into that a little bit later.
2: Who's next? I don't know if we're on the same order as far as what we're Right, see. right. Um, well, why don't you go next, Caleb? Okay. So hi, my name is Caleb Jackson. I'm a co-author and also host of the show Proselytize or Apostatize on YouTube. Uh, I have two books um, on Amazon right now. Uh, one's called Undead, which is on the resurrection. The second one is called Searching for a Solution to Suffering, which is on the issue of Theodicy and the Problem of Evil. And currently I'm writing a very large tome on this particular topic on the th- discussion of miracles today. So hopefully that'll be out late this year, sometime early next year. I'm really excited for that. And yeah, I've been doing a lot of promo um, for that research, and this is part of that. So I'm excited to to be here and discuss this topic today.
3: Cool. I'm Jonathan. I don't have any sort of uh, public content that I've put out, no books, no YouTube channels, no podcasts or anything like that. But I think this is an interesting topic. Um, I'm approaching this from a pretty critical perspective, I suppose. But I think it's really interesting because it opens up lots of opportunities to talk about um, where our methodological intru- um, intuitions diverge as
2: naturalists and non-naturalists. So, Can I just ask just for the audience, so we're all on the same page, can we each say like, as far as what we are, like, as far as naturalists, yeah. atheists? Well, so I, I'm a Christian who is a theist and affirms miracles, so I'll start.
0: I'm a naturalist and an atheist, but I have some Unorthodox views, where I might diverge from other atheists and naturalists.
3: Uh, I'm agnostic on all of this, but I lean toward
2: no miracles. Are you ad- so? Sure, you're agnostic me. as far as theism. Sure. Yeah. Okay. okay.
1: So history: fundamentalist Christian became an atheist. would then was like? Ah, whatever you call me, whatever you want to call me. And now I uh, don't consider myself an atheist. I don't think. I just kind of be in the meh. I don't really know. Doesn't seem to matter too much. I'm um, more interested about the specifics about religion, so I, do, I am not dogmatically a naturalist. Um, if you're going to ask me opinions on consciousness, I'd be like, I don't know right now. So it's like, <laughs> so uh, I don't feel like uh, you have to be a nap, uh to know those things. Sorry, to to I feel like you don't have to have positions staked in those camps to be able to engage in the conversation. And so we'll see how the how the conversation develops. I feel like.
2: Yeah. No, so I guess I was just going to start off and then we can go to that that document. But the reason I kind of got into to this topic was well, when I was first doing my book on the resurrection, the last chapter on that was on miracles. And I did a very, very broad overview of, you know, Humean stuff and gave a couple examples. And it's like, yeah, it seems rational to believe. Um, but then I really wanted to expand on that point. And that's kind of what uh, started that off. It was going to be a 60-page paper, like an essay on the topic. And that ended up turning into... It's over 400 pages now, so, so a much wider wider thing on that. But I think what's the way I start off that book, I think with the argument from Miracles, this is an important argument from theism, and it's also an underused argument, in my opinion, because if you look at like surveys like Phil Papers, the vast majority, the, the mer- argument from Miracles is in a pretty small amount. It's only, like I think, it's in single digits as SARS percentages go, whereas cosmological, ontological, teleological, moral arguments all have much, much more written about them. And almost everything on Miracles is mostly... Just the the general notion of could we theoretically be justified in believing in them? But outside of the resurrection of Jesus, there's not a lot of literature published on any particular case. Um, well, maybe besides that, besides the shroud of turn and the resurrection of Jesus, I'd say those are like the two caveats, but there's really not that much literature produced on any particular case. And so I think that the argument for miracles is underutilized, which is weird because I think it's fundamental to most traditional, at least Abrahamic religions that that exist today. Um, and it gets you to a more of a personalized God because anyone can concede that there may be some deistic general notion of a God, the philosopher's God. But I think the argument for miracles is what really is supposed to solidify the justification of any particular religion, as well as the uh, the justification of a personal God um, who actually cares, intervenes with with human affairs. So, yeah, that's kind of where I wanted to start that off with. I didn't know if anyone else had any comments on that. Or oh, also one last thing I'll throw in is I also think, Defining a miracle, I would define a miracle as an intervention—an uh, intervention by God or supernatural agent into the laws of nature that would otherwise be impossible without such entities' intervention. So we're not talking about things that are just really improbable, like someone winning the lottery twice or something. These are things that would be impossible outside of supernatural intervention.
1: Yeah, we'll see how much we talk about the definition because
2: I like that you brought up Hume, because
1: I think what's sad is. I feel like there's been a, a lot – now, maybe I'm just ignorant of the philosophical literature, but I feel like there's been a lot of lack of development since Hume, to be honest. Like, people – maybe they'll say, eh, Hume overstated the case, but he's basically right. And sometimes it's something kind of along those lines. I know some people like Peter Milken are Humean experts, and they'll try to – even then, it's – um. I feel like a lot of times the positions that are being – hey, Kitty – are. Um, that are trying to be staked out, they're kind of vague, they're, they're hard to define like where the, the borders are. So that can be kind of frustrating if someone who's trying who, you know, when you come when I at least for me, I'm speaking for myself from a fundamentalist background, like you like to have answers, you know, and you want to have answers, you want to be sure about things. And so um, when there's ambiguity, there's frustration. Um, so I don't think we're going to get to anything concrete, but I think I like the idea of uh, exploring where we're unsure of. I think this all offices uncharted territory. Um, For me, I think what I want to get into a little bit is some of the intuitions behind people who broadly identify as naturalists where you might look at things that sort of have this appearance of being miraculous and what is it that causes us to think, okay, but that can be explained naturally. Like what are the, the things behind that? And on the opposite side of things, um, I am curious why certain criteria are picked out by particular theists of what counts as a miracle or not. Like, why are we doing this? Is this because we have certain uh, beliefs we want to hold to, or is there independent reasons we can give to qualify um, these criteria that we use to assess miracle claims? So I'll toss it over to either Emerson Emerson or Jonathan.
3: Yeah, I don't have a whole lot to add at this point. I think the emphasis on interpreting Hume in the literature on miracles is kind of unfortunate because there seems to be this assumption uh, from, (laughs) don't wanna (laughs) state my position too strongly at the beginning, but there seems to be an assumption from the theist side. It seems to me that if we can just defeat Hume's argument, then, you know, most contemporary skepticism about miracles has to be rethought or something. And I just don't think that's reasonable to think that whatsoever. I think most people read Hume's on miracles, they think, ah, that's in the neighborhood of correct. And we might have to tweak it just a bit to get to the desired conclusion. But something approximately Humean is a good reason to be skeptical of these things. That doesn't commit us to saying that Hume was infallible, that on miracles was infallible. And so if someone like Ehrman comes along and says, "No, here's how Hume should be interpreted, and here's why that doesn't make sense, the response from people who are miracle skeptics should probably just be to shrug our shoulders and say, okay, fine, you know, that's an interesting little, little nugget of historical information. I was never staking too much on Hume's exact formulation being correct in the first place. So let's just talk about the argument.
2: Yeah, and to be fair, I think that a lot of issues that people have is big be- because everyone talks about Hume. And of course, it's it's hard to have this discussion without talking about Hume because he's been so influential. But it wasn't even Hume's original argument. He was going off of Descartes before him. And even then people act as if Hume's hasn't been revised at all. It's like when we talk about the ontological argument, people still bring up Anselm when it's been revised well well, you know, the past 1000 years. Cosmological arguments, we don't still necessarily just talk about Aristotle and Al-Khazali. We've moved on to, to more. Though I think every argument for theism or against theism, whether that's the problem of, problem of evil, problem of hiddenness, or theistic arguments, each one has had modern evolutions. And so people act as if Humes has never been revised. And it's true that the, the human arguments say are still based on that bare skeleton. But you have people like uh, Jordan Sobel, Graham Oppie, um, I think Arif Ahmed and other people, Peter Millikan, who have more Bayesian, more complicated, more nuanced versions of it. And it's obviously, it's hard to respond to every single model out there because it's hard to do that without getting really technical and specific. Um, but I think respond to the general notions of, of human ideas that plague all of these models maybe is better. <clears throat> um, but it really just depends. So I think that's a good point that um, Jonathan made as well. You know, we don't have to defend the exact essay Hume wrote. I don't think anyone would defend everything in that essay, even people like Anthony Flew and uh, J.L. Mackey. And... Oppie said that there were issues they had in the particular essay, but that doesn't mean that we can't revise stuff. And I'm saying this as someone who's obviously against and, uh conclusions to that. I'm just saying, I think to represent it fairly, not act like that's the only position that's out there.
0: It's um, It's too technical to get into here, but I think one of the better defenses of the, you know, sort of attack on miracles that could be considered broadly humane would be Sobel's discussion of miracles in logic and theism but I'm just throwing that out there for people who maybe want something more technical to dig into on the, on the atheist side. But um, if you guys don't mind, I, I would like to interrupt this um, highly interesting and academic and scholarly conversation to talk about the TV show about vampires that kind of set me onto this. Um, so there's a show called Midnight Mass that I saw when it came out. I don't know how many months ago that was, but you know, I really liked it. The last episode was a little weak, but there's this uh, scene with like uh, an argument about you know, the problem of evil between this, uh, between one of our main characters and between this priest. And, you know, like, as far as philosophy of religion on TV goes, I thought it was a really good discussion, you know, like, if it was like a published paper, it would obviously not be very good. But I'm saying, like, considering that it's just a thing on TV, I thought it was like a pretty good discussion of the problem of evil. So there's this atheist guy debating a priest. And by my lights, I think the atheist guy just destroyed the priest in this problem of evil argument that they were having, like just unambiguously won the argument they were having. And then, you know, a few scenes later, the priest performs this miracle where there's this uh, young girl who is shot through the spine, um, been confined to a wheelchair, and she gets up and walks. And just like the intuition that I felt like watching that show, it kind of gave me a new perspective on the argument for miracles where it's like, you have all these technical arguments, you know, arguments from evil and this cumulative case for naturalism. And then you just see a miracle happen, you know, like something like someone in Jesus name, like tells a crippled person to walk and they get up and walk. And it just has this like, you know, overpowering effect on you. And it just made me kind of see like the intuitive force that miracles can have. And it made me you know, interested in analyzing them a little more carefully, but, um, yeah, that's the uh, very non-scholarly thing that got me even thinking about the argument from miracles, because I kind of just dismissed it before I sort of had this, you know, arm's length distance through um, a TV show of being like, oh, I can, I can see how that would kind of overpower, you know, there's this guy making these arguments from evil, but then you just see a miracle, um, you know, performed in Jesus name, and that could kind of overcome those sorts of doubts. So I think it's like, you know, I think you're totally right that even though, professional philosophers don't lend too much weight to this sort of argument i think that you know your more ordinary believers probably have had experiences that they would consider miraculous that they kind of cling to um that's definitely been my experience with believers where you can argue with them but eventually they start falling back on these like strange things that have happened in their lives and um yeah i mean it, it has a lot to do with why people are religious
1: i want to hop in there because it Two of
0: those things there that you were talking about
1: seems uh, to be relevant to some of my past experience. So I come from a uh, from an independent church that always had Pentecostal and charismatic leanings. And at one point, um, I felt called and pursued, got into the ministry. Like I, I've spoken in tongues in the past. I've uh, I've laid hands on people in in different ways. You know, so you know, and uh, someone who's not familiar for that setting, it's definitely gonna be a bit of a culture shock. Um, but if you're used to that setting, you, you realize it's not too unfamiliar. People actually do this kind of standard practice and stuff. Um, but to get to that is um, when I went to school for ministry, I went to a very, very a school you shouldn't go to. Let's put it that way. Uh, <laughs> uh, and what was interesting is the church background I came from. Uh, we believed in miracles. We believed in uh, God working through signs one or two miracles today we weren't cessationists or anything like that um but we were never super like this, is, this wasn't something that was happening every other service or once a month or even or something like that whereas the thing i went to is something that was kind of their bread and butter so to speak and it was one more of those um so it was what could be described as one of those more televangelist style environments right so what's interesting to me is uh, the first thing that came to mind was your thought of the the impact of like oh wow you see someone uh, who has hands laid on them in the name of Jesus and boom something miraculous happens, and that's kind of what it was for me and I still never quite thought that was enough. I'm like surely scientists can investigate this. We can come up with something where it's like yeah, charismatics are just you know they're crushing it when it comes to these diseases. You know like like why is no one studying this thing? Um, but I think what was sad is you'll hear a lot of similar testimony from pl- people like Benny Hinn's ministry. Um, whereas you see a lot of this times it doesn't work just being covered up. And when you see that a lot of times, it does take some of the intuitive force out of it. Now, that doesn't mean there aren't legitimate cases. But what I think it does is it helps put things in the proper context where it's like, well, you can at least consider the possibility that some of this stuff is not happening. But Um, The other point that you raised was interesting as you brought in the problem of evil from the show. And I thought it was interesting because as a Christian and even now, like the problem of evil was never really a driving force for me um, leaving the faith. And even now, it's not a huge thing that's keeping me from the faith. And the reason why is. I know some people have really strong moral beliefs about God and what his intentions are and how he acts in the world, but for me, I'm like if there's a first cause and he acts in some way, whatever you want to label it, like I'm going to call it something like God, regardless of what we think of his, what we refer to as his moral attributes. And so I think that's kind of interesting because um, I think you could argue about God and how miracles might point to God. And sometimes the questions would be as, well, why is God doing it this way? Or why is he doing it that way, right? What's the moral point of this? What's the grand story? What's the grand narrative? And part of me is like, but do you have to defend that? It's like, can you just point to this idea of, hey, maybe there's this being who, um, or maybe um, you can say something about his desires about having to defend this entire moral framework or this entire religious uh, story. But you can just say, hey, we can say some minimal things about God's desires, uh, what he cares about, and heck, maybe he just wants to show off once in a while. So um, that relates to skeptical theism, I think, a little bit, too. But I'll just leave it there to see if anyone else had some thoughts at the moment.
0: I mean, I'll just say that the uh, arguments from evil didn't play a huge role in my deconversion, but they are playing a huge role in why I'm still an atheist and why I'm a naturalist at this point. But I mean, a lot of that was just me not understanding arguments from evil, um, and then once you actually get into like the literature, you you know, it, it's not exactly how it's presented by apologists, in my experience, and um, yeah, they're actually really, really powerful <laughs> arguments. Um, but yeah, when I was when I was a Christian, when I first deconverted, I I was kind of misled into thinking that arguments for evil were basically just atheists complaining about their lives being hard <laughs> or things being sad, <laughs> and it's like no, that's not it at all. <laughs>
2: Yeah, to me, I think it's interesting that you parallel those two because I think for me, both of those are stronger as individual cases rather than like, when you talk about evil in general, I don't know, it's harder to relate to. where It's like, we can think of broad reasons as to why God might allow this, you know, free will, soulmaking, making, whatever. But I think it's those particular cases. If you take a particular case of like child abuse or something, something really terrible, and you're like, why did God allow this specific thing to happen? That's really hard. And I think that that's what gets me more than it does of just why does war happen, or something like that? Or why is there a disease in general? I think it's when the, you look at those particular individuals uh, that that's what sort of affects. And I think miracles are the same way. When you ask, in general, do miracles happen? What's more of an abstract idea and doesn't? When you when you look at specific cases, oh, well, how do I explain that particular one? I, sometimes I think on both sides, the answer is not always overly clear as far as getting an explanation. And so I think for me, individual cases on both ends, whether it's for evil or for miracles, are the ones that I think are more persuasive. See,
3: to me, that kind of highlights what I think is the pitfall in this case study approach to the miracle question when you make that comparison to the problem of evil. Because I think we'd all recognize that it's a bit silly to, if someone were presenting the problem from evil, to like go to the Detroit Police Department website and just pull up a list of all the reasons recent crimes that have happened in Detroit and be like, oh yeah, theists, how do you explain this one and this one and this one and to move down the list? But that happens in the miracle debate. People are like, all right, Craig Keener's book open to page 523, here we go. How do you explain this Sri Lankan peasant? Like, okay, you know, I don't know. Um, but if I were to do the same thing with the problem of evil, you'd recognize that that's a dumb argument, right? Because, yeah, we should be talking about big picture, I think. We should be talking about, like, features of the distribution of miracle reports, not individual cases that someone has a difficult time explaining. Because there are going to be those cases, whether naturalism or theism are true. It's not like either of those worldviews predict that we should always be able to explain what's going on in cases X, Y, and Z. And so to bring up the fact that you can't necessarily read the facts off of the superficial presentation of the case doesn't really do anything to tip my credences one way or the other. I want to think more big picture than that.
1: Well, well actually, actually, that's a great you point. project on there actually, uh, because I share your desire about the big picture approach more in case studies. And that's why it's cool about case, uh, Caleb is, he's actually delved in more to those case studies than I have personally. So I'm not going to pretend I have expertise in these case studies, but I think what's interesting. So uh, in the document, I mentioned something about a rough sketch of some sort of inferential argument uh, uh, against miracle claims. Um, and it's kind of an idea, right? You look at the distribution of miracle claims, right? And you're like, well, of course there's going to be some that are hard to explain and whatnot, but here's one thing that came to mind maybe to, to come to maybe something that someone like Caleb or someone else might think it's like, okay. But when we're assessing this distribution of miracle claims, right? Usually we have some sort of empirical methodology that we're utilizing in order to uh, say that certain cases have better natural explanations when you don't need to appeal to a supernatural explanation, right? But then it seems when it comes to these fringe cases We throw out that method and we just go back to the ones that we did use the empirical methodology for. And we came up with an answer and say, ah, now we don't have to use the empirical methodology in this case. And we can just appeal to these other cases and say, hey, it's most likely going to be natural. So what do you guys think about that as some sort of a, hey, maybe there's something funny going on with this methodology here. What
2: was the last point again? I don't know if I understood what. So, um
1: when you're using empirical methods to assess uh, miracle claims, right? Maybe for example, people were more credulous, right? We know more about psychology. We know more about illusions or, and so we can come up with natural explanations and say, Hey, we're using empirical methods for these other natural phenomena," and say, Hey, this actually seems more reasonable for these miracle claims to explain it. Then um, some of the things you might bring up for uh, why a miracle might be from God. But then we go to these cases that are harder to explain. And when we can't appeal very easily to those things, we kind of throw our hands up in mystery instead of saying, uh, my point is it seems like we're using uh, empirical methodology inconsistently here. It's like we're using it for the easy cases and then we're throwing it out when it comes to the hard cases.
2: Yeah, I know that's a good question. By the way, just because he brought it up, I, I'm opened up to page 523 of Keener's book. So it's a healing of those unable to walk. So there you go. Is but, Sri
3: Lanka mentioned?
2: <laughs> what was that? <laughs> I said, I'm is sure the case is. from Sri, Sri- Lanka? Yeah, there is a lot in here. I don't know how many of you have actually read it. Um, I will say just a, just as a, on methodologies, since I'm talking about Keener now, I'm a big – I'm a fan. I'm still planning on trying – I've been emailing him. I do want to get to meet him in person because he lives in – well, now I'm in Indiana, but my parents are in Kentucky, and I go back on weekends, and he's only like an hour from where I live. So um, I, I have a friend who's trying to set up a meeting between us so I can do an interview, so that's, that's kind of cool. But with his book – I think it's a flagship book and it's one that you always hear people bring up, but I think most people bring up have not actually read the whole thing. Cause it's, you know, 1200 pages, <laughs> but it always comes up in the discussion cause it's kind of the first of its kind. But I will admit that I think it's really a lot of uh, quantity over quality where he just machine guns off so many. And a lot of these, we don't, we, we can't verify and it's sometimes it's uh, third hand or whatever. So, you know, I think when you, I think the issue is when you don't have a specific diagnosis of a condition or something, when you get too vague of reports, you just have to say, we don't really know for sure, but this isn't enough to rule out this, this, and this, because although we don't know enough about this to prove any particular natural explanation, we also don't know enough about it to rule out any particular natural explanation. So I think that kind of goes both ways. Um, But as far as methodology, which is what Gabriel brought up, I think it kind of depends on how you look at it. So I think in general, like the argument for miracles is premise one, a miracle is that of which only God could do. Premise two, at least one miracle has occurred. Therefore, premise three, God exists. Um, premise two is probably the one that would be a lot more the most contentious um, but I think when it comes to like infr- I think inference the best explanation um, kind of a swin burning approach is you know how I, how I apply it where you could say um, premise one uh, s- certain miracles are explained either by deterministic natural laws indeterministic quantum phenomenon or by uh, supernatural agency premise two um, x miracle some miracle cases are not probably explained by deterministic natural laws or quantum indeterminacy therefore principle three some miracles are most probably explained by supernatural agency and so you would kind of try to do i guess a inference to best explanation by deduction and negation of other two options now as far as how much you could rule those other two out would be where the debate would come in um, but i would say that just as we have good understanding that natural law acts a certain way and that the naturalists will use that to their advantage we also can say that because we know natural law so well Um, it is also easy to roll out certain natural things because we know that they they operate in a certain way. Like, for example, we have very good understanding of how bones heal because we've had millions of examples. We have good understanding of how muscle atrophy heals over time. And so um, although a bone healing by in itself wouldn't be a miracle, if a bone were to heal within a few hours after prayer or a few days after prayer, after being broken, that would be unprecedented as far as, and that would go against everything we know about how fast bones take to heal. So I think the fact that we have so much evidence to support how a natural law acts a certain way, if we see something that seems to be very inconsistent with said natural law, some kind of deterministic explanation probably wouldn't be best in that particular case. So it really just depends on, on the situation.
0: I mean, I, I'm not totally sure why you're bringing like determinism into it. I'm not sure what work that's doing for you. But I will say, like, I think it might be helpful to say what would be convincing at least to me or you know and maybe it'd be helpful for for um jonathan and gabriel as well so some atheists i think are kind of excessively skeptical about miracle claims like it's almost like nothing even could conceivably change their mind and like i'm definitely not like that i'm i'm open to uh the universe being weirder than than we think it is so i made a video about amputees recently which caleb really really liked um and uh <laughs> Uh someone in the comment section, sorry to call out this random person, but um, it's a pretty common response that I've seen more than once, where they say, how do we know that this isn't just some natural law that we don't understand yet? And I'm like, okay, so if you pray over an amputee in Jesus' name, and then you watch their limb regrow, and then you look around and make sure Pendulette's not in the room or something, but, like, you know, a natural law is the best explanation. Like, no, a natural law is not the best explanation of a, a person, you know, with an amputated limb, and you can verify, you know, independently that they actually were amputated, and you pray over them in Jesus' name, and you watch the limb grow back. Like, you know, I mean, barring hallucination or some kind of like illusion, like, if you can verify that that happened, then yeah, that would change my mind. Like I, I, because I don't know of any natural way for a human limb to grow back. Like there's a precedent in nature for limbs growing back, but not human limbs. And certainly not in the moments after someone prays over it in Jesus name. So like that would actually, I I mean, I'm just saying that would convince me. I also think that um, counter-apologist came up with a good example of this, where he said if only ordained Catholic priests could turn water into wine when they said the right prayer over it and this was reliable only ordained Catholic priests could do it it was when they said the right you know Latin words and this happened reliably we could study the water beforehand and study the wine after that would convince it that would be a genuine miracle claim and a key part of that is the repeatability because a lot of these miracle claims are one-offs but which is a frustrating aspect of miracles. Um, makes it really hard to uh, to uh, verify them but so counter apologist example I think is great. And I got to be honest, some atheists disagree with me on this, but I think they're totally crazy. If you prayed over, you know, some an amputee in Jesus name and you watched their limb grow back. Yeah, I mean, that would that would change my mind.
1: Do you mind if I challenge that just a little bit? So, again, I'm not saying that you're wrong, actually. So I'm still thinking about this. Um, I have certain cases in mind where I think evidence would be enough to believe, yep, this is a miracle god's working you mentioned kind of a controlled aspect right with catholic priests i think you can come up with various scenarios like that so i agree with that but um so prayer is interesting right because let's talk about one thing we do know about prayer which is because somebody prays for something doesn't mean it's going to happen right so you could come up with uh if you were going to come up with a uh, data and you had a distribution of all the people whose limbs were prayed over in the name of jesus and you found out the number of people whose limbs grow back you're going to find a very 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 small amount of that right so i i guess maybe in that particular case um so for example if you were finding this happening maybe in a different religious context as well besides maybe say uh, a christian context um why not some sort of other um so it might still increase the chances that God was doing this, but wouldn't it also at least increase um, some other mechanisms? It could be some sort of other spiritual mechanism or even some other, other natural mechanism, maybe like a mind over matter kind of explanation. You know, someone was in the right place in the right time, you know, and so it just, and it's an unknown natural mechanism. And I'm not trying to be super dogmatic because again, I'm like, I don't want to just say this is that's what we should believe. That's the best explanation of these things. But why not consider that as as reasonable?
0: Well, I, I mean, the last point is the important point as far as I'm concerned, like what's the best explanation of what just happened? So it's not that there are no conceivable, you know, explanations that, yeah, maybe there's some kind of uh, spiritual realm. Maybe nature is really, really weird in a way that like we just somehow haven't noticed yet. But um, yeah, so there are conceivable Explanations that um, are not just, well, Christianity is true and it's the one true religion. But you have to ask, like, what's the best explanation? Like, if you have the scenario that I outlined and it happens exclusively under the auspices of Christianity, like, the best explanation is that Christians are just, you know, they're really onto something. Maybe it doesn't mean agree, that right. everything every Christian has ever said is true. It just means that they're onto something and that you should probably start going to church <laughs> and figuring out what Christians are saying because. Clearly, they have tapped into something about the world that doesn't really fit into your model.
1: I got to go back to my charismatic church.
3: <laughs> no, I think that's a good point. But I also think this question of agency can get really, really tricky. And perhaps the only reason that we don't talk about it as much as I think we should is because we're still stuck back here on these unreasonable people that Emerson mentioned who are you know, looking for only a naturalistic explanation just because you've ruled those out doesn't mean theism automatically wins or your specific brand of theism automatically wins. You've got to consider you know, various agential hypotheses or potentially like Gabriel mentioned, non-agential supernatural hypotheses. And that conversation is going to be really hard because we're going to have to fill out our picture of that agent's desires a bit more. And then that might bring that agent's hypothesized desires into conflict with the rest of our body of evidence. And so, you know, it's just the start of the conversation as far as I see it.
0: That's a there, good. That's are there good. miracles that I, I want, um, we kind of skipped past it, but Jonathan and Gabriel, are there miracles that would change your mind and make you at least like maybe take Pascal's wager more seriously, or, you know, you end up going to church as a result of some miracle?
3: The ones you mentioned would do it.
0: Okay. Yeah. So something along your lines, I mentioned, I think on Caleb
1: did a post on the recent religion Facebook group. And um, I just mentioned, and I didn't say the water and wine, but I did say like, if ca- only Catholics prayers were answered, like that seems like a pretty, I, I mean, cause you, you could rule out cause you could talk about people could say, Pro prayer puts you in a state of mind, you know, and you know, it's opened yourself up to some sort of weird mechanistic healing process or something, right? You can kind of argue that across different religions, right? But if literally no other religion, uh, prayers were answered, but Catholics like at an astonishingly high rate, like something like 75% work, that would turn my head. Like, I I feel like it would be unreasonable to not consider that as good evidence. Um, Now, Maybe you could fight that one a little bit. And this is where I wish I had I came up with a pretty good um I had a good discussion with somebody about what would make you, someone who is putting on like a magician show, what would convince you that um and he claimed he had magic powers, what would make you convince you that he did have some sort of supernatural power or whatnot? And I'm like, you just need to put some sort of really extreme controlled conditions on this. Like I think I used a teleportation example and stuff. If you have enough scientific instruments you're you're in this facility it's locked on a gazillion different sides you can know that um these are independent um people measuring this not people who are on the magician's team on each side you could find a way to say yeah this guy's teleporting people back and forth i do think that's it might get a little crazy you might need to have an insane number of controlled conditions to be able to to establish this but in principle yeah absolutely you can have that
2: do you mean you mean like controls put in by like you get to pick the controls and because i mean you can have the magician now the the, magician (laughs) can do it where they can sign bullets and you can see the signature the glass pane is there and it's like oh we're not going to cross this line they set their own controls and yet you still because they're the ones setting the controls right so you You'd have to have someone independent party do that so i think that's a, yeah you would have to have independent jews no way
1: you could, i think you could do say that just yeah. from so what it, we know musicians like what david Cofferfield could do like you just yeah. always have that huge question mark. i'm
2: also a big fan of magic by the way like it oh, i, cool. I, I Not my thing out. these are i don't know if you know what spirit boards are i used to i did a seance trick back in the day i actually did a friend's bachelor party so i you know I, all all that kind of stuff i think is just really really fascinating yeah
0: no, and maybe you'll like this. Then my um, my uncle actually, you mentioned the bullet trick. He was the guy they picked out of the crowd to like make sure that the gun was legit. Because I get because he was in the military, and they were like, "Does anyone here know about weapons or anything?" And they like, "Oh yeah, yeah." He was, and he was not. I mean, I can guarantee he was not a part of it. But yeah, they uh, they brought him out of the crowd to. I think I know how the gun. trick is.
2: I mean, you don't, they don't have to be in on it. Yeah, they are really random people. So yeah. that's it's 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 a really cool.
1: Well, let me pick up Jonathan's point about non-agential. Um, explanations a little bit there because i think the point that he's getting at is so maybe we can rule out natural explanations but does that make the default explanation well therefore god did it and i think what caleb and emerson are bringing up is that maybe the religious context is relevant um and i think my my lingering concern still is a little bit about Mm -hmm. that um in an ideal world what i would love right is you have these circumstances and you could show that x percentage of the time christians when they're praying and it goes above chance basically right that would be great we obviously don't have that at least i don't think anyone here's claiming that we have something like that so we have to go case by case right and it just always seems strange like i think i think what it is is that when it comes to like limbs regrowing that that just seems to be one of those ones where it's like that one just seems so extreme that maybe we don't need to worry about that because it's just something we don't see happening naturally but i'm like how often is this happening supernaturally? So, like, how do we know 300 years ago this didn't happen naturally? How do we know 500 years ago this didn't happen naturally? And, yeah, it's weird because we're obviously talking about something strange, but we're in the realm of miracles, too. So, I again, I'm not trying to be excessively difficult there, but I do wonder if maybe we're jumping the gun a little too much. And uh, maybe it's a separate point where he brought up about if getting into um, the desires of the being that we're hypothesizing did this and whether that relates to our other uh, information and in like a cumulative case. But um,
0: I, th- I think any the details thoughts? of the case are really, I think the details matter there. Like, cause we're talking about trying to make the best explanation of, of what we're talking about. And it can vary pretty dramatically case by case. Like Caleb mentioned earlier, like someone whose bones heal after like three day three days after being prayed for. I mean, that just doesn't really move me in the same way as praying over someone and then watching a limb grow back. Like, those are just two, even though
2: it's impossible.
0: No, um, I mean, so, bones heal at different rates for different people, and like the thing is, I mean, medicine is the youngest science, it's like it's not something we don't understand the human body, we don't really understand, we don't know that much about medicine and physiology. Um, it's not something where, but we can inductively infer that limbs, human limbs don't grow back, like but, that's something like, external that we can, you know, we can see it, we you know, don't. if
2: it's a frequent disposition of like. The number of examples we have of someone's bones healing within two days is zero. And the number of examples we have people growing limbs back is also zero. Is it not equally as unlikely?
0: No, because it it comes in the context of an an understanding of the natural world. Just because we have never seen event A happen and we've never seen event B happen, there's sort of like a contextual understanding of how the natural world operates that could still make one a lot less likely than the other one.
2: Maybe I'm just not understanding. I understand what you say about the natural world, but I'm saying if we have good, if we have really good experience seeing all this happen, like take something like, um, what if someone had a big gaping wound on their forearm and they were prayed Mm -hmm. for, and you saw the wound close before your eyes within a few minutes? Um, Now that's not Mm -hmm. as impossible with as an amputated limb. Would you consider that pretty hard to explain naturally?
0: yeah no i mean that would we could be- say hey
2: we know wounds we know cuts heal they don't heal right. that fast but if it was like a deep like someone say well maybe this was just accelerated we know that this can heal quickly um or, or like or like someone with, some with cataracts that you literally saw the cataracts fall off their eyes as they were praying um we know cataracts can only be, be removed surgically they don't just naturally go away um so like with that th- i think those things to me seem equally as impossible as in we don't have any other examples of them. And we have good, good understanding of how those conditions work because we have millions of examples of them not healing. So that's um, just kind of, kind yeah, of, I, I, I
0: mean, I just, the reason I get hung up on amputees, it's like, this is something I brought up in that video is like, if you mean what you're saying, if that's right, then there's no difference between amputee healing and healing someone's cataract. So why not heal the amputees if it's the same thing? You know, but it's always these things that are just kind of like a little less subjective seeming, a little less verifiable. I mean, like, what exactly do you mean gaping wound? Like, that's the kind of thing that could be exaggerated really easily. And, you know, it's just the the objectivity, like the the. Observer independence of just like that guy doesn't have an arm and it came back like that's not the kind of thing that you can Just lose in translation does, or really be the
1: Of the Legitimate miracles matter here though So if say like three people in history or one person in history had their cataracts fall out and we didn't have a amputee healed or As caleb says maybe we had one example mm-hmm. um, Like how relevant is it? So that's why I'm trying to wonder a little bit here So like I can understand if you think oh, hey um, there's a lot of reported miracles a lot of people think a lot of these ones are legitimate but if someone's mm-hmm. more skeptical towards that i want to just say "As hey yeah miracles are just really super rare and so it's not that unexpected that we haven't seen well, you know what's
2: also interesting is how this is where i i i brought this up to emerson afterwards i think it's a point that doesn't get mentioned. is how often i agree that amputee healings are rare how often do you see people praying for amputees to be healed like i i have never seen a, a faith healer take up an amputee on stage and attempt to pray and fail Mm-hmm. um whereas i have seen them do that with people with cancer or blindness so i feel like there's almost an intuition in the back that they don't even attempt it because they know it's not gonna work. And so if that's the case, I wonder if it's because less people are praying <laughs> I,
0: was, I can see Jonathan going crazy because I know He's, he has something to say. He cannot be,
3: I don't have much to add to that, but that just sounds like a great explanation. That sounds like exactly what we would expect to see if amputees weren't actually miraculously healed ever. We would expect people to realize it, that that's not the sort of thing that we can ever attribute miraculous divine action to. And so we stop praying for it and then voila, oh no, you mm-hmm. can't claim this as against my position, I didn't even bother to pray for it. I mean, we've got to start putting some assumptions on how we think that God is going to respond to these things. So if you think that God is performing miracles out of, you know, benevolence, I want to ask, you know, okay, does the prayer actually increase the probability of a healing? How much does it increase the probability of the healing? Does everyone who has experienced a miraculous healing in the past, have they been prayed for? Um, That seems really strong to me. And so, You're going to have to put a lot of weight on assumptions like that to be able to claim that the fact that people don't pray for amputees very much explains why we don't see them healed very much. I think the simpler explanation here is people don't do it because they know it's not going to happen.
2: Do you think people who do that still, uh, well, that's, I I agree, but do you think people don't, are, are they insincere when they pray for things like blindness or cancer to go away? Or do you think they genuinely, sincerely believe that God can heal them?
3: Oh, I think, I think they
2: believe that he can heal those things. So why are they more confident with that than they are with amputee? Because they just have heard stories and so they're like, oh, it's more likely that's going to be healed of blindness than it would be on. Sure.
3: Yeah, that's a great natural explanation. They've heard of these things, you know, disappearing. They think, oh, that might be miraculous. Let's pray for it. If you don't heal any or hear any stories about people's arms and legs growing back, you think that's not the thing that God's in the business of doing. Let's not bother asking. The more cynical hypothesis here is that, you know, People don't want evidence against their position. And so they do things to avoid providing evidence against their position. And prayer is an example where you can do that.
0: Yeah, Yeah, I think there's a real subconscious, you know, I mean, everyone has got to know that this is a real, like, put your money where your mouth is kind of moment, like, because you can pray for someone's cancer to go into remission. And, you know, whether it's conscious or not, everyone knows that cancer goes into remission sometimes, and that it often doesn't. And you also can't see it, you know, like, if you pray for someone's cancer to go into remission, it's not like you can just see that happen in real time whereas an amputee thing you see it happen in real time and it's you know i mean everyone knows like i said it's it's kind of like uh put your money where your mouth is kind of moment so i think even if it's not conscious i think everyone knows that like this is you know this would have to be the real deal and it i think it does kind of scare people off from actually doing it I i don't think it's so black and white where it's like oh people who are faith healers are insincere because they're afraid to you know uh heal amputees, like I just think that even if you do believe it doesn't mean that you're gonna you know really jump off the building, you know, thinking you can fly or really step out on the water. that could still be hard even if you are totally sincere,
3: yeah, absolutely Caleb, you know uh, I'm sure you know Randy Clark, right, I think that's the name, yeah, his ministry of I guess he prays from the stage and you know whatever ailments heal right, so he has this he, he went and earned himself a PhD so he can, you know, contribute to these conversations. reverend
1: doctor. <laughs>
3: exactly, exactly. Um, never heard of a school, but that's okay. Um, no, so... <laughs> If you look at his, uh, one of the chapters in his dissertation on this dissertation, um, he's talking about like surgically implanted materials and what happens when he prays from the stage for these people and do they gain mobility in their arms when they have surgically implanted materials. And at the beginning of this dissertation, he's like, I started praying for these people all the time because I noticed that sometimes when I pray for people, um, they would feel better afterwards when they had surgically implanted materials. And then, so he, he publishes this dissertation where all of a sudden he starts doing that. And the thing is, if you notice that that's the sort of condition that starts to remit, or you start to feel better after receiving some encouragement from a charismatic guy on stage, uh, and you start to And that's the criteria you use to pick that out as something that you should pray for. It's just not clear to me what the evidential value of that is. It's like watching that cancer goes into remission and thinking, oh yeah, I'm going to pray for cancer more because it goes into remission. Now you're not thinking I'm doing it because it goes into remission. You're thinking I'm doing it because God heals it, right? It's the same thing.
1: Well, here, uh, okay. So I'm wondering a a couple things, but um, so with the cancer remission thing, right? So I think... Caleb, uh, and I, correct me if I'm wrong, because I don't want to speak for you. Um, but so when it comes to cancer remissions, I think we, we'd we all agree that they think cancer can go into remission just kind of unexplained. We don't know why. It just, just went into remission. Right. But are we just saying that there would be no number of cancer remissions like in a religious context in some way that would ever be evidence for some sort of divine work here? Because I'm, I'm I'm worried about even that assumption a
2: little bit. So, um, yeah, if you guys want, it depends on the nature for me. It depends on the nature of the cancer remission. So the problem is cancer remission is a very broad term. There's different kinds of cancers. Some cancers remit, uh, faster than others, by the way, I think this would be evidence for, cause it's, it's true that actually in the, in the most technical sense, re, spontaneous remission just means it went away without explanation, not obviously from treatment or chemotherapy. So it just means we don't know. Um, but although we don't know, sometimes in a lot of cases we can make a good guess as to why. And you can look at things like correlations of um, they've done studies that people who get viruses and infections while they have cancer have higher emission rates. And so there's a hypothesis that the immune system fighting the viruses also find the cancer cells, and that's why um, certain cancers have higher emission rates than others, which also implies some kind of genetic explanation. Because it's be kind of weird to think God likes to heal lung cancer, or breast cancer <laughs> more than he does brain cancer. Um, so i think those would so those would be red flags to look out for but i wouldn't say that it would never be evidence it would really depend if it was healed in a way that is completely contrary to everything we know about it again i would say i make a big deal in the book about speed of recovery so i know of cases of people who've had stage four metastasized cancer um they were diagnosed uh, and then uh, they were prayed for that week and then a few days later the next scan they're completely cancer free um, without chemotherapy anything uh that's not at all a normal cancer remission rate. And that
0: is pretty significantly different. You can't yeah. remission in general. I mean, days we days we days can days. all admit that that's not like normal, but do you think that that's outside the bounds of the known laws of nature?
2: Uh, it would, de- it would depend if you only had these quick rates happen in a religious context and they never happen at this same speed outside of religious context. Okay. I think that would be a control. In fact, they actually do that. If you look at like, I don't know how much y'all know about Lords, France. I think that's actually a good case study. That would be a good thing to discuss. Um, because in the Lord's, it's a it's a big Catholic pilgrimage site. Because in eighteen the eighteen hundreds, a fourteen year old girl said that the Virgin Mary appeared to her, and she showed up this spring of water, and this water is believed to have healing properties. And so, pilgrims all over the world come here to get to get in this water, and they actually have a medical bureau set up of of. Uh, doctors, I think it's a panel of like 20 to 40 doctors, and they're not all Catholic. They, they just have to be qualified, and they investigate these claims. So someone will file a report to say, I was healed so-and-so, um, and they have to do investigations on these, and they have pretty strict criteria. There's been 70 um, recognized miracles um, between the eighteen uh, between the 1850s and today, which is not that many because they have hundreds of thousands of people who go there every year. So 70 is pretty small, but they that's because they have pretty strict controls. And one thing that they noticed there is that on these cases where they can confirm that cancer went away it happens at a much much faster rate than it does in any other context and so if you could show that in religious context these happen at a significantly more either more prominent or faster rate than they would otherwise and there's no other examples of it outside of context doing it i think that would be something to to take into account
1: i think that would be good evidence too i guess that my question is do we actually have information about the base rate of those kinds of cases
2: i think in general yeah i've looked at studies where it's like they'll do follow-ups on people where they'll be, you know, they'll follow up with them every few months and they can see the tumor shrinking. And so we can confirm they have it. which, you know, so that's another thing too, is if it's a complete healing, if someone gets better where their tumor, they were prayed for and their tumor is now uh, one third of the size that it was, and it gets better the next time they scan it, like it's an improvement, but you know, in the Bible, typically they're healed instantly. It's, it's weird mm-hmm. to think that it's a gradual Now it depends on what it is. So if it's an incurable, if it was an amputee and they slowly got a stump, that eventually made a foot over the course of a month that would be gradual but it would also still be impossible either way so you know i think i would, it's, I would,
0: I would be so annoyed though if, if that happened like if it was like a month long here i'd be like can god just do this right now so it's like unambiguous yeah. like what is happening like if I, I was the
1: one i want to complain too much i want
2: to stop yeah i agree that it's preferable that it's spontaneous the lord the lord's criteria are that it's a disease that uh is otherwise like incurable or that treatments haven't worked That it's an instantaneous recovery, that it's a complete recovery, not just a slight improvement, and that it's permanent. So they usually wait at least 10 years before saying anything and follow up before. There's always going
0: to be like a a bell curve, though, of like time of recovery. And there's always going to be that very, very far end of the bell curve. And just by dint of the fact that most people are religious, I mean, I could just, I can imagine, you can see where I'm going with this. I'm just saying that this kind of fine grained data is probably really hard to come by, especially since you would want to compare it to non Christian populations. I couldn't really find any special concentration of healings and non-healing like because like we mentioned earlier you want to talk about not this like particularist approach where you go case by case by case you want sort of a more general approach where you talk about the distribution of healings and of non-healings like across the religious population um you know you can imagine like a problem of evil book in the style of craig keener where it's like I have this 3 million page book of every bad thing that you've heard of. And like, you know, it it just seems like you want a more generalist approach where you're looking at the distribution of healings and non-healings. And again, it's really hard to find fine-grained data about this. But as best I could tell, healings happen pretty much regardless of your religious or non-religious persuasion and non-healings happen pretty much regardless of your, you know, whereas you would expect a concentration. If there was only one true religion and like only legitimate miracle claims so everything else that's happening everywhere else is within the bounds of nature except within catholicism and that's where there's like supernatural healings but as far as we can tell it's like i mean there are some christian apologists who are highly motivated to collect all these stories but it's so easy to find um improbable healings with hindus atheists agnostics you know all kinds of non-christians but yeah you know i think the distribution of data is the better way to approach this. It's just really hard to actually collect fine-grained. Can I say data? two well, things just, on Well, Caleb, trailer. I just
1: want to ask too, because like, do we actually have, and you mentioned um like follow-up data for mm-hmm. the cases of reported healings, right? Mm-hmm. Was that you trying to answer whether or not we know what the base rate is? So my question is like, do we know what like these kinds of remissions that you're talking about, mm-hmm. what they're like? So not even just in other religious populations, but amongst like the non-religious populations. I mean, I, I have to imagine it's, now, maybe there's something because if I'm just curious if you are aware of data that we might not be privy to.
2: Yeah, well, so typically in a lot of me- in a lot of medical reports, they don't specify unless it's a study that's comp- actually controlling for religious populations. They don't usually specify uh, as far as like what the person is religious or not. Um, and that's another issue, too, for controlling for prayers that you can't really rule prayer out, uh, because if you look statistically, I think that they've done polls that show like. 80% of Americans will pray for serious diseases and even like 25% of atheists will sometimes pray if they're in a really bad situation out of desperation. Um and so it's and and speaking of that most in polls they done, most Americans don't talk with their doctors about prayer. So you're going to get a high false negative rate of people being reported healed and it being reported and not mentioning prayer because they either don't tell their doctor or the doctor doesn't mention it. Um you don't you, know, you don't ever see one that says they were not prayed for or something. But um so I think that that in general is a bit Hard to control for but what i was talking about with rates is that if you look like in every in all the literature we have as far as remissions of x disease um if the only ones you were able to find of that speed and versus are in religious context and all the one and you can't find anything comparable to that outside of a religious context that to me i think would is what is what's significant so I, I, obviously we don't know every single case because they're not always documented but as far as the literature that we do have we have pretty good ideas as far that as far as it has. As to my knowledge, I've only been able to find one medical paper of a disease remitting overnight, um, and that it was a particular blood disease that I don't remember the name of. Um, and the all the other ones I could find where it was a disease that instantaneously healed overnight were all in the context of prayer. So, you know, you don't have that. That that's kind of the the difference, I think.
3: But I think there's this really tricky selection problem here because you have to think about where we're most likely to acquire our data about instantaneous or near instantaneous healings. So if I have a really tricky medical condition, and it remits very quickly, it heals very quickly. Because I'm not inclined to interpret that miraculously, I'm inclined not to report it as such. And I think my doctors are also inclined not to report it as such. They may think it's strange, but are they going to write a paper about it? I don't know. But if that happens to, you know, the Pentecostal down the street from me, they're gonna be like, oh my God, it's a miracle. They're gonna call up Craig Keener and they're gonna be like, yo, you have this hotline where I can report my miracles. Here's another one for the books, right? And so I, I think it's really important to think about how our data is coming to us and it's not coming to us by random selection, right? It's coming through us by a highly filtered and highly selective process. And to even do this question justice, we've really got to get into the nitty gritty of that. And so when you talk about lords and you're like, oh my gosh, look at all these, you know, very quick healings or whatever. Yeah, they're way more likely to be reported there because people go there seeking a miracle, right? And they see, or they go there anticipating or at least thinking that the likelihood is higher. That if something happens to them, if they Start to get better, it's because of divine intervention. They're looking to publish this. Like, uh, there's a really interesting book called, um oh gosh. it's like marketing cures or something. That's not the actual title, but it looks at Lourdes in particular and is looking at all of the like marketing that goes into Lourdes and the sort of publicity effects and the uh, renown that you get for having a genuine miracle there. These are all things that like boost the incentives of people to report these things rapidly. And so all this just goes to say the process by which we've obtained these stories um, in which, you know and I'm not gonna dispute that within this narrow sample that you've collected, maybe there are more that happen in a religious context or reported in a religious context, but that's a highly non-random way of delivering the data to us. And if we're going to do this any justice from a you know serious scientific perspective, we want to know something about the mechanism that delivers us our data.
2: Yeah, well, that, that's a good point, but I think that's also hard because under the theistic model, I don't think you're expecting Non-believers to be healed at the same rates, right? So if we're going to grant that non-healers aren't going to report, I'm sorry, that in out of religious context they're not going to report it as much. I think it's also hard to justify under the theistic model. By the way, that's I was going to comment earlier as far as the the exclusivity of well, if Christians were the only ones who could do this or whatever. I think first of all, it depends if you're you know if, if you're someone like me who thinks all Christian nominations are well, at least the main ones are legitimate. Then the Catholic versus Protestant distinction is not going to be um, that significant if. Under Christian theism, but if you could say, what about you know non-Christian religions? I think if you're going to accept the Christian God as the explanatory agent, you can't divorce from that the existence of angels and demons and so forth, um, because that's pretty closely tied in with the mythology. It'd be kind of weird to separate that um, if given all the other truths of, of mm-hmm. the Christian God. So I think that, it, and, and of course, in the Christian narratives in the Old Testament, you have them being able to perform feats as well. So um, now granted, they are at better rate. So I think if we said Christians did this at a better rate, or that it was improved. I think that would be something. I think that that actually is something that that happens. Um, but just to say in general, Christians would always be the only ones who were prayed for when or who were healed when prayed for. Especially since a lot of the world isn't Christian too. I think it would seem a bit cruel to have you know people in non-Christian countries never be healed through prayer because they don't even hear the gospel. Um, so I, I think that particular method would be hard to a hard thing to justify given the background knowledge but so so like
0: as a christian you think that god would like out of compassion heal muslims that are praying to allah just because he's a good god in
2: the yeah and i think what i'm doing right now i argue that god really would have two main reasons for performing a miracle one would be to show mercy on someone who's faithful to him to build their faith up and two would be to justify theological message which is more uh, what jesus did as far as backing up a claim of a prophet or someone but do you think that uh, He
0: would heal muslims though
2: I don't see why he wouldn't. know. I mean, if you actually in the Old Testament, I think his name is Nathan. He was a, um, a Gentile and he goes in the Jordan and goes in seven times and comes out healed. And he I don't think he converts to Judaism, to my knowledge. So I don't necessarily see I don't necessarily see under that why God wouldn't heal someone out of mercy. Um, but now I think the theological message when I would be more adamant of saying that would be pretty particularly only Christian um, that God, I don't think God would perform a miracle to justify a certain belief taught by another religion that was contrary to it. But I think those are also less evidentially sound. (laughs) As far as one.
3: So you've been talking about prayer a lot, Caleb. So like you mentioned in response to the amputee thing that you don't see a lot of people praying for amputees to be healed. I, I don't quite see how that meshes with this thing about mercy and benevolence, right? Does someone have to pray for a healing in order for God to show mercy and benevolence? It seems like he doesn't, right? But okay so so why do we think that the prayer is doing any heavy lifting here
2: because i think that the prayer is meant to be a condolence to god and a request and it builds up the relationship between god if the person's healed and they don't know why then they may not i think part of the prayer is to build up a person's faith in relationship with god even if it's in another religion it's still better to be closer to God than nowhere so i think the fact that the person's going to attribute it to god is is significant and i don't think that i think i, I don't think god performs miracles in secret as far as i don't think um you know like when when young earth creationists want to say that god did all these miracles and then change it to where you can't detect it when you look into the the laws of physics and it looks old i don't think that makes any sense or when muhammad splits the moon in half and we've gone up there and you can't tell it's like well maybe he he put it back where you couldn't tell it was ever broken in the first place and all that it's like it i think it just defeats the whole purpose of the nature of the miracle where it's supposed to be like a message either to the person being healed to strengthen their faith or to other people to justify some kind of dogma. Um, but So you know, in
1: this case, though, we are getting into some of God's, uh, we're speculating about God's desires, about God's mm-hmm. motivations in, in this case here. The thought, where that seems to be the most problematic for me is that the miracle claim that I'm most familiar with, which is going to be the resurrection claim. Um, and it just, I, I feel like that is a lot bigger assumption than um, many christian apologists theologians are willing to grasp maybe maybe just because you know you're so used to it, it's part of the uh your religious practice and stuff but i i do wonder it's like how good are the reasons i think that god would want to reveal himself in this way right and this is why i even put a little note about skeptical theism on there right which is like it seems like now i i can't speak for you because you might not want to go the skeptical theist route when it comes to the problem of evil and stuff but it does seem like there is at least one theistic approach that says, hey, listen, if all this evil in this world, we're not really in a place to know. I don't see why we also couldn't take a place with God and say, like, hey, these miracles, maybe God's just having some fun. Maybe God's just doing it. You yeah, it was like, you know, the, so there's that kind of thing. Or maybe he's an evil God and he's trying to push everyone in a like be like, ha, I got you guys. That was funny, wasn't it? You know, something like that. So, but OK, maybe we don't want to go skeptical theist route. So maybe that's unfair. Um, but uh, the other way is thinking it's like, it, we almost start to think about things that we expect are reasonable to believe that God would value. So God would value this narrative, this Christian narrative, God would value this resurrection story, um, and the redemp story of redemption that comes along with it. And I'm just wondering, like, it almost seems like we're just already assuming the thing that we hold valuable is valuable when I feel like in some sense, it's the very thing that's under question. Like, I'm not sure why God's message would need someone to die on the cross in order to rise again. Like, I'm not sure why the main message of what he would want would require that. Um, I don't see why just being a particularly good person um, would make uh, so that God would be likely to rise someone from raise someone from the dead. I don't think that in combination with the fact that he's uh, purporting to speak for god raises that probability i think uh if anything i think um god would be less likely to raise someone who claims to speak on his behalf in that manner from the dead i feel like in some ways you could think that's kind of a uh showing a lot of hubris and that people who are doing that are actually less likely to incur god's favor so there's all these things going on here and i'm wondering is this the most productive way to to think about miracles? Because I think what's interesting to me is if we can just start from the miracles and just from there infer to a God, like that's money right there to me. It's like, wow, boom, like that's game over. Um, but do you think you need this? We need to talk about God's desires, his, um, his, uh, motivations and so forth.
2: Yeah. Well, I think so. I think with the resurrection you do, um, I think with the other particular cases, those would be, those would probably be more mercy cases. So I will grant you that I don't think we can psychoanalyze God and particular cases of why did so-and-so in, in the Congo get their hand restored when it was broken or something like that. Uh, but I think in terms of Jesus, I think it sounded like you were, maybe on like it, what you said reminded me of a lot of Richard Swinburne's approach in his book, um, Resurrection of God Incarnate, where he basically tries to argue, he tries to raise the priors by, you know, he's always, he's argued for theism in his other books. So it's kind of meant to be a sequel to that, but he gives reasons to think why a God given evil would want to atone for sins and what, why there's a lot of why atonement is the best model for relieving sins and why incarnation is that is what is expected of God for terms of humility and stuff like that. And that's a lot to go into. So I, I'm not going to defend his entire book there because I don't know all, all of it. It's, it's pretty in depth if you want to look into it, but um, basically he argues that there are good. It, it, it's it, it's a good prediction to say that a, a omnibenevolent God would want to atone for sins of humanity and would want to become incarnate. Then he, then he gives reasons to think Jesus is the best candidate for this. And then with that, he, raised the priors to say, now that we have the context of that, the resurrection isn't nearly as unlikely as as one may suppose. So that's kind of how he approaches it. And I think that's an interesting, um, interesting idea.
0: I I wanted to bring this up. It's um, important to the resurrection, but also just miracle claims generally. Like I was listening to Trent Horn the other day, talk to counter apologist about miracles and Trent alluded to this divide among Christians that he called the classical versus evidentialist divide where There are some people who think, well, I already have good reason for believing in God and performing miracles is the sort of thing that God might do. So when I hear about miracle claims, I think, yeah, maybe it was a miracle. And then there are these um, evidentialists who look at the miracle claims and say that is evidence for God. You know, so it's like the other people who think I already have a high prior in God, in, in a God who might perform miracles. So when I hear this miracle claim, I might buy it versus the people who say, no, anyone should be able to look at this miracle claim and then come to believe in God on the basis of this evidence. So there's that kind of divide. And it's kind of interesting because a lot of the big names, they kind of fall on either side of that. Anyway, which I take it that you fall more on the evidentialist side where you think that like someone like me should be persuaded to be a Christian on the basis of the miracles. Uh, I think
2: it's a both and. I don't think those need to be mutually exclusive. Uh, I, I think Craig, William Lynn Craig tries to do it on the other end where he tries to start with God and then go into specifics to say, first, God exists, therefore the probability of miracles is higher. Um, I think that's fine as well. Um, I don't have a particular amount, but I think that I, I would say that I think mo- for most people, it's probably the former because most people on this earth believe in either God something like a god or at least something supernatural naturalism is actually a pretty rare belief historically and in the modern day even a lot of atheists and polls say they believe in ghosts or something like that so the idea that there's a supernatural realm that can interact with the natural world is not at all very it's not at all uncommon. it's the predominant view so i think most people would probably take that view to say well we already have a good reason to think these things exist so yeah it's not surprising me they would interact in that way um but I think for other people, for people who are naturalists, the, the second model would probably be a better way to go. At least, do I'm you
0: think I should become a Christian on the basis of some of the miracles that you could allude to?
2: I don't know. If, I think I don't think you can divorce them from the general theological context. I would say it should make you reconsider your naturalism, maybe. Um, but maybe think there's something more to that. I don't know if that alone would, but well, I think it would be a good step.
1: Can I ask something? So we got to the idea of the distribution of like miracles, right? So in some sense, by bringing that up, we're asking these rare, this rare phenomenon that we uh, are observing, we're asking, is this happening in other scenarios as well? And in that sense, so so I'm going to bring Hume back in here. So I'm curious how much are we worried about this affecting? So even Caleb um, talked about the idea of got intervening in natural law a little bit. I'm like, by bringing up this possibility that this phenomenon could be uh, something that is natural, aren't we kind of undermining and undercutting the idea then that we can discredit or kind of write off some of these miracles because of what we know about natural law? It's I think Caleb did allude to this a little bit. So I'm worried it's like, if we're already considering other natural possibilities that we don't know about... So once we start going down that pathway, I'm wondering if we're like, yeah, we're just kind of throwing what we do know that's um, informing our beliefs in natural law to the wayside to kind of incorporate this as well. And I'm wondering what you if you guys have concerns about that. So it doesn't mean that these things can't be part of a natural law. It just means that we can't just say, hey, what we currently know about natural law, um, this isn't part of it. So therefore, we don't really have to take it as seriously. Does that make sense a little bit, guys?
2: I think it just depends. First of all, I don't think that the general notion of natural laws is well established, therefore anything that contradicts our known natural law should be suspect. I mean, that's partially true. I'm not so much concerned with the prior. I actually, I think I have said this in a post before, so if you've this this might be uh, new to some of you, but I would argue that I don't think that miracles are hard to believe because the priors are low. That's part of it. But I think the bigger issue is that it's not that miracles are rare, it's that natural explanations to explain miracles are very common. So um, spontaneous remission, people lying, people misremembering things, misreporting things. We know that happens all the time. And so it's initially more probable. That's one of the explanations than it is for, for um, the miracle hypothesis. And I kind of give the thought experiment of saying, um, imagine that we live in the world that we do now with the same natural laws. You know, people don't rise from the dead generally, all that stuff, same, same, same ratio of, Miracle to non-miracle, where miracles are extremely rare. Um, but let's say that in this world that we've evolved to have heightened memory, to have heightened perspective where we can't misremember things, our brains are sharpened to where we have really good memory, really good recallability. And let's also say that it was evolutionary beneficial that uh, we tell the truth and that we establish trust as a society so we get along communally and that evolution over the long run factored out our ability to tell, uh, to intentionally tell a lie. So under this world do we have, um, you know, we, we have to tell the truth, given our biology and that we have to, uh, that we can't really easily misremember things, misreport things. Now, let's say in this world that Bob comes along and says that he and he's sincere that he saw his friend George um, die three days ago, um, was buried. And now he saw George appear to him in his house. And then um, after George left, um, you know, he talked with George for a while. They ate together and then a bunch of George, uh, Bob's friends said, we also saw George appear to us. What's going on? And say we heard this account. Um, now knowing that we have those controls in place, would we be more likely to, to believe, um, Bob, I, I would say it seems more probable in this world. Whereas if we had the same account in, in our world where Bob says he saw George after three days and stuff, it would be harder for us to roll out to say that, well, maybe he's lying. Maybe he was hallucinating. Maybe he's misremembering something. Um, any of those, any of those things. So to me, I think that it's more of an issue of controlling for other explanations than it is of just saying, well, it's super unlikely. I think good enough evidence can override established natural law. You see this in science all the time. Um if, if someone were to say that, you know, causality is very something that's very well established throughout human experience, but then it comes along uh Heisenberg's uncertainty principle and all these weird stuff in quantum mechanics that's not intuitive to to most people. And so that's a that's an extraordinary claim when you first hear it. Of, what do you mean like stuff doesn't have a direct causation that it's indeterministic that does that's not intuitive to us and so it's a very extraordinary claim and we have lots of people claiming to observe this Um, most people don't take the time to go out and research this themselves and, and watch it under a microscope where we're trusting this because we read other people say it and hypothetically you could go and repeat it but most people don't take the time to do that and they, don't, they shouldn't epistemically have to be uh to, to have to go and take the time to repeat it to be justified in believing it so although you could say well we have lots of people saying this and they claim that they've repeated this and stuff we could say yes but we still have Billions of other more people who said they haven't seen this that we have seen cause out and that this establishes better. So even if you have millions of scientists saying they've seen this, it's counteracted by billions of people saying they haven't seen this. But that's obviously not how it works. right? You can't say, well, billions of people haven't seen it and, and have the familiarity. So therefore, we have to discount it. It's not a competition. That's the the mistake Hume makes, because Hume says, well, if you have 100 experiments and 99 give you one result and one gives you one result, you should take the 99. Um, well, that's true. But the issue is with, with that one result, would we say, was there a contamination where the condition's different? We would think that something was different in that case. And in, in the case of quantum mechanics, there's a big difference because the laws are different than they are at macroscopic level. And in miracle cases, the conditions are different because the thesis is saying that the condition that's different is God intervening. And that's what made the difference. So I don't think that this appeal to, well, we, natural laws behave this way. And so um, that lowers the probability of, of the other ones I, I don't think that's that follows but i know i said a lot so if anyone wants to, to comment on that i, don't I mean know that there's anything. so
0: much there i just i i don't know uh if gabriel and jonathan know something but i feel bad for caleb because um he's like <laughs> it's just i when i was coming on here i thought it was going to be the other way around for some I did too reason. I thought it was going to be three Christians and me, and I was kind of nervous. Well, I, and it was probably my fault,
1: because I kind of pushed this together a little bit more short. Now. So, so my idea is I would you like do to follow, follow up, re- Steve,
2: by the way. We're going to have a panel and stuff. We'll do something more big range in, in the long term.
1: Well, that's what I'm saying. I, I kind of want to make this some sort of recurring. It doesn't have to be so. There's so many tangential, is, sorry, t- tangential issues related to miracles that I feel like that there's a lot like there's even some notes here, like even some of the directions uh, Jonathan and you Emerson are going and are different from what I was expecting. And from Caleb. So, um, for example, I wasn't expecting Caleb to give that definition even of of uh, of miracles, because uh, I know not know all theists agree on that definition of miracles. Um, and i wasn't sure how much we were beginning into specific cases because so right now we've been talking very general outlines and i think that's a little unfair to caleb because caleb has done a lot of work on these case studies on the specifics uh, i'm okay
2: with outlines but it'd also be unfair to you all because you probably haven't looked into specific cases so if i were just to throw one out and you without looking into it you probably wouldn't uh, well i think wouldn't. it's going it to be
3: fun no i yeah. i think that could actually be really interesting to just sort of see maybe we could put on the table what we would like to see ahead of time so you know you put out this miracle they yield amputee and we can say okay well here's here's what i would need you know at the very minimum to feel like i can evaluate this case competently and then when we can go read the reports and be like oh okay so we have some of that not all of it i don't know but i think that's really interesting because i think a mistake that people make in this conversation is that they start looking at the evidence first and then they start coming up with their criteria and that just feels so gerrymandered to me right like if i if i want to go look at this case of the the Spanish amputee or whatever, and come back, I I, I can gerrymander criteria that will make it reasonable that I don't believe it, right? Um, But I would kind of like to commit some of that to paper first and be like, all right, here's what I'd like to see um, mm. here's what I'm expecting to see, and then sort of test that up and match that against the data that I have because that's a good way to hold my feet to the fire, right? And make sure that I'm not just trying to use the cheap escape route that I find when mm. I actually get into the details. You, you know,
2: know what that's and like, people. and I've made this comparison too. I think that's like when creationists say there's no transitions, transitional fossils and they don't define it. And so you say, okay, what do you mean by? Tra-? And, and the, If they give you a specific definition, you can find something that fits that. And they don't want to do that because they'll know you can pull out something that does. And so they'll change their definitions. Like, well, give me your definition first and let's see what would, what, would fit that. Uh, otherwise, or they'll just give it something that's like you know a crocodile that just doesn't, that's not mm-hmm. what evolution predicts. Yeah. I, I think it.
1: in theory, you could have n- zero miracle cases and you could come up theoretically going back and forth and coming up for a criteria. What would make you believe in a miracle? So. Mm-hmm. You absolutely can have it. So that's why I think it's still productive to have this conversation. Um, But that being said, I think, again, the reason why there's ambiguity is, I think it's fair to say a lot of us might not know every single configuration of evidence that would make us change our mind or that um, should change our mind to believe in a miracle or not, right? So in some sense, we are testing our intuitions too, and you're allowed to change your mind. So it's not like you're stuck in one thing and you can't change your mind or something. So, But that being said, yeah, I think, um just having good faith actors it really matters in these conversations because otherwise yeah you can just play a game of hide the ball move the goal posts mm-hmm. and then you well, just can I, and it becomes a game because
2: you're not really getting anywhere it's kind of sad yeah can i that's what i was going to ask a clarification or uh, well, I, I like how i mentioned moving the goalposts because I, i've made the joke before because like, i've had people where it's like if you say no one's been raised from the dead and then you can give a case where someone was dead for like several days or something or embalmed you know different cases they could say well no one's been cremated and raised from the dead or something or no one's been decapitated and raised from the dead so it's like that's why i think having those before it is important or um well, if someone were someone were to get an amputated leg back well what about someone who's been amputated in two legs or something and have a you know well, I mean, the worst
1: case scenario we mentioned right is the people who just denied so it's like well people don't raise for the dead so this case the person didn't raise from the dead yeah, I mean, and and it kind of, of, it's 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 they do a little bit more than that, but that's basically what it is right now. Yeah, well, that's it's a bad tr- like that's, some
2: that. people, some people say that, and that's usually a straw man that people that miracle de- defenders will give. It's like, well, you just and that's a very bad interpretation of him to just say, well, he it's circular. I mean, there are circular elements to it, but um, I think that also goes well. I, I'll bring this up because counter Paul. I don't know if you've seen uh Eric Manning and I. Eric Manning has a channel called Testify, which Christian Baljacks, I don't know if you're familiar with it, mm-hmm. he has stuff on miracles and, and uh uh Christianity and it's like the whiteboard style. Um he and I were talking to uh counter apologists on YouTube if you want to check it out. It's a good discussion. But at one point we we're get, he he said I would have to see it for myself. And he I, I was surprised when I was like, so if we had like scientists and medical doctors say that they looked into this and confirmed it, he was and I said, would you think they're lying? And he said yes I would. So that would be my question like Emerson if if we had a report, if this was like published in a journal or seen by scientists of this MBT, but you didn't like it wasn't on video and you didn't see this yourself. But we had reputable people in this community saying it. Would you still believe it, or would you have to see it yourself if you right had? You try? yeah, because yeah. because some people will say, "No, I have to see it myself." I would think they're lying.
0: Well, I mean, with enough independent attestation, I think I would have to believe it. But I mean, the thing is, there's a lot of wiggle room in what you just said, like. That I can imagine a range of quality that would technically meet the meet the criteria that you just laid out. So, uh, you know, I don't want to sound too particularist about it um, where it's like, oh, I want to examine everything on a case by case basis. Mm-hmm. Like there are general features of testimonies that make them more or less plausible. It can be hard to pick those out sometimes because like and it's something I wanted to get into um, about the reliability of testimony and, you know, how that factors into just like basic epistemology, because it's hard to talk about miracles without getting straight into, you know, foundational epistemology and how do you even know anything. Um, But I think somewhere where we could find some common ground is that, you know, some atheists are excessively skeptical. And a good way of illustrating that is the kind of gerrymandering that Jonathan was talking about. But it, it happens on an even bigger scale because they've, you know, like most people don't really think about these things until certain issues come up. And then they start thinking about epistemology for the first time, or start thinking about the epistemic value of testimony for the first time. And you can find atheists saying things like, Oh, testimony is never enough to establish this, that, or the other thing. And like they don't even specify, you know, because obviously I can imagine cases where testimony wouldn't be enough and cases where it would, you know, like testimonial evidence is a gigantic category and there's a range of quality within it. But everyone accepts many, many things purely on the basis of testimony. Um and i think Most that just many people have not too. I mean, oh yeah I mean, yeah it's not like i'm, I'm running like, out there running experiments you know but yeah oh. i
2: mean granted it's I, mean, I understand that you know it's i'm not saying that it's comparable this, the evidence for the Santa method is much better because it's repeatable although then again are these claims of repeating or are you actually you know you're not going there and watching it but the point is like strictly speaking human you could ask well, which one's more likely that an amputee got a leg back or that a bunch of scientists would lie because we can give examples of Organize, organized things of people lying for money because or pe- there are people who think that um, Big pharma lies about vaccines causing autism, right? Or that or any other things. You can find people who, who will say that, yes, the U.S. government is lying about this or scientists are lying about this or whatever. And they'll they'll do that. And I, I think all of us would say that's unreasonable. Even Well, though- I
0: mean, so the thing is, sometimes the government and, um, you know, establishments, institutions do lie like there. Are, I mean, it, it doesn't violate any laws of nature that um, institutions would lie or governments would lie and it's been known to happen but no i mean like the thing is it, i just think that the criteria that you're laying out right now are sort of too vague like i could imagine things that would technically fit it that i wouldn't be satisfied with and things that would technically fit it that i would be satisfied with but i mean look it would be better if i could see it myself obviously i would rather see it myself but i think that there would come a point where it would be unreasonable for me to uh deny it but um Yeah, I mean, I I think I could believe on the basis of testimony, but it would have to be testimony of the right quality and kind and independence and so on. And like I said, it can be hard to identify the exact features that make testimony better than others. But we can still identify clear cases where like, okay, you believe this on the basis of testimony and that's rational. But if you believe this other thing on the basis of testimony, that wouldn't be rational. And there's no inconsistency there. It's just that they have different features.
1: And I think that's fair because um, I, I, th- I don't think Caleb was necessarily thinking that this is the criterion that's, that, and that you don't need any, you don't need any other, uh, you don't need any other uh, criteria at all. But I think it's a good starting point, and it just does, does help because, like, there are some people, like you mentioned, who I think maybe just haven't thought through it enough, or there's some sort of other motivation involved, where it's like testimony would never do it. And I, I think you, mm-hmm. you can Like, I remember um, there was a comment thread I was on and. It's like if, if testimony is never enough, that means it's like in some possible world, like 50 million people uh, giving testimony for something wouldn't be enough to believe a miracle claim. And I'm like, do we want to say that's true in every single possible case? So we, even, you can take it to the extreme and you can still say, yeah, it's pretty obvious that testimony, pro- we can come up with cases where it would be enough. And then I think that's where it's get, that's a great starting point. And um, we haven't gotten into much criteria Um, about what we think would be great for um, miracle claims, you know, independence, you know, testimony from enemies. Um, We'll bring up that question of persecution. You you don't even have to be stuck in the box of the theoretical virtues that people have come up with. Like, I think there's enough ambiguity in this area where people can think of novel criteria that haven't been thought of yet. Um, I don't think we have precise boundaries. I mean, that's the reason why we're having this conversation. Oh, this is when it's justified to believe in a miracle. Oh, now it's not. So it's there's plenty of room, I think, to maneuver on these things. And I'm, I'm just going on for
2: a while now, so I'll I'll stop right at that point. Are you, you're good. Are you familiar with uh, Tim McGrew's, um, what, what's the word, acronym? That's what I'm looking for, DOUBTS. That's kind of his uh, what he lays out as far as criteria for, for miracle testimony um i am trying to remember that there are so doubts the d is distant so he's saying if it's something that's reported really far away that you can't verify that's you know, that's kind of or, or, or th- that no one else was there to verify so if it's someone saying well i heard a guy say that he saw someone healed in africa uh, eh, you know you, you don't know, they don't name the people they don't know it's very vague and far away that's not good um i'm trying to think uh the o oh, oh, oh was um a sta- uh, opinions already established so if these are coming from people who are already fervently believing in it that's a question mark so if it's someone if you go to india and you have followers of a certain guru who says they saw him form a watch out of the sky and they're really and they're already really devoted followers of him are they, they can be really objective it's better to have people who are either neutral or skeptical to investigate these than people who are already really really fervent and believing them um the U is uncertain events so things that are kind of coincidence so that aren't like amazingly some, so something like um in in the battle and there's a there's a certain roman battle where they were uh they were fighting the enemy and someone prays and as they're praying hail and and lightning and rain start to come and it, and it hits the enemy makes them go away it's like yeah the timing's kind of impressive but hail and rain are kind of normal things lightning so you could say it's improbable or someone praying during a drought and rain coming and, and first time you know it's like well you know that's not impossible it's just so that's kind of uncertain. Um, that the, uh, what did I get to, uh, you be oh, belated, So something that's third or fourth hand or second or really, really long dose. So Avalonus of Tiana was a miracle worker who gets compared to Jesus. His biography was written about a hundred years after his death in another country. Or, um, you could do that with like certain legends of Alexander the Great or, um, Pythagoras where their biographies are really, really, really late. And it's probably like legendary that that's a big red flag. Um, to think i think
1: some it. people though would argue that there is legendary development within the gospels and i know tim McGrew is maybe a little bit more conservative he is you're in right the, <laughs> is, uh, oh, and
2: and, he, and some he, of the,
1: the the data that he uses for example for the resurrection then say more of a minimal facts sort of approach so i mean i'm sorry i, I i'm not saying that you're, you're bringing up good points for sure like, yeah
2: criteria to use and stuff but yeah but you're no you're right on that i'm not gonna defend so people like michael akonis wouldn't say all those apply to the resurrection because Tim and Lydia McGrew have a very conservative take where they argue that the gospels are written by reliable firsthand witnesses are not handed down through a world tradition. Like a lot of scholars think. So they, yeah, have the, the, the McGrews are
0: outliers for sure.
2: They are. Yeah. Th- that's why they, that's why they have that particular model um, because they would agree with this. I forget what the other two, I know S was, I'm trying to remember what T was. Oh, I think T was theologically insignificant. So this is the stuff, and this is going to depend on your models of gods. I think get wrote up, but stuff that's like really random. Like he gives the example of Stephen Law saying, "Imagine you have a friend named Bill who comes over, and Bill flaps his arms and flies around the uh, the room, and then turns your couch into a donkey, and then leaves." Mm-hmm. It's like he would say that's a really weird situation to have. But I wouldn't necessarily think God was behind it because yeah. I have no reason to think God would be behind. It. Or like I give the example of imagine a unicorn appeared in the middle of Times Square and started breathing fire. It's like. I would say that's really weird, but I, I don't know if I would need right. to say that it was an, a miracle by God because it doesn't. It's the end seem-
0: times, Caleb. It's the end yeah, times. Exactly. Actually, um, Dale, Dale Allison had a really funny example of that where he, t- I can't remember the guy's name, but it was, I think it might've been a saint who could like supposedly levitate a few feet off the ground. Oh, Joseph of
2: Cupertino. Yeah. Yeah.
0: So I heard about this on um, Nathan Roman's channel Digital Gnosis when he interviewed yeah. um, uh, Dale Allison. But yeah, Dale Allison was, he brought up that point where he was just like, you know, it's so well attested that if it were anything else, I would have to believe it. Mm -hmm. And he's like, but I'm hesitant to say it was a miracle because it's just, it's not really theologically significant. Like what's more likely that, that, you know, just there's some weird X-files scenario going on. Like nature is just really odd or that God just periodically levitates people for reasons unknown. Like, he's like, honestly, I kind of am inclined to thinking that the guy was, able to levitate. But I just don't think that God did it or that it was a miracle because it just it doesn't really make any sense. Yeah, I, think, I have that. Sorry, go ahead, Jonathan.
3: Oh, I was just going to say, I think this theological significance thing is such a double-edged sword, though, because on the other hand, what I think it does is it raises the probability that someone's going to mistake be mistaken about the causality of what's going on. Like, if something is happening in a religious context, that's exactly the sort of context where certain types of people uh, think that God is predisposed to act. And so, so, you know, it's also the kind of context that I could easily see generating a bunch of false reports too. And I mean, ironing out the precise details here is going to be really, really tough, but I think that's, mm-hmm. you know, that's, that's one thing that we ought to be cautious about.
2: You're right. And and Magruder admits that this is going to give to a lot of false negatives. So he's not saying that a miracle can't happen if it doesn't fit these. He's just saying that he wouldn't affirm them even like, so maybe God really did levitate Joseph and it wouldn't fit this criteria. And and we're just mistaken saying that he said, that's fine, but we're taking, it's a risk we are willing to take to get false negatives. By the way, I do mention the Joseph case in my book and I don't know what to think of it. um, But cause there are, there's actually a quote I have from a Yale historian whose name I can't remember off the top of my head, but he basically says like, we have so, I have no idea how to explain this. Like, obviously we can't say joseph flew because that's ridiculous but we have to explain why so many people think that he did and these are this was seen by enemies by people in different conditions with lighting stuff and these Mm -hmm. were these weren't just like you know some some people the the closest thing i could find to explain this was that he was a good gymnast that would jump up in the air at times (laughs) and, and land on things and the problem with that is that a lot of the reports we have are him staying in the air this is not like a few feet this is like 20 30 feet in the air for 20 minutes at a time in like meditation and they would actually have to, what's funny too, is that this, the significance, the church actually hated him doing this and they didn't, he was canonized, but not for that. He was canonized for some healing miracles because the church didn't count it because they didn't think it was significant. Like he would do this during mass and understand that people would be distracted. (laughs) <laughs> so they actually hid him away he was away living his
1: best pool. life my gosh
2: they would they would hide him away and they would people would follow him and they would keep wanting to see this but the church like hated him doing this and they would have to tell him to come down as he was doing this so it's, it's a really weird thing and the church didn't even like him doing this so it's he one forgot his
1: sermon prep that day so <laughs> <laughs>
2: yeah we were distracted but the last one was the S which was self-serving which I know is also a little subjective but the guru gives examples of like Joseph Smith or Sadia Sibaba where they get a lot of wives out of their religion or someone like who obviously makes a lot of money or sells a best-selling book on it. Someone who has a lot of motivation to lie and has a lot to gain from lying. So that's just the last one. So, uh, And actually related to that, I
3: mentioned this book on Lords earlier. I found the title. It's Consuming Visions by Suzanne mm-hmm. Kaufman. It's called Mass Culture and the Lord's Shrine.
2: I so think I related. probably have read that, but that's, yeah, that's good. Yeah, so Lord, Lords, Lord's, is, Lords could be a whole episode we do on ourselves. It's really interesting. And, I'm not sure if this is even
1: picking at low-hanging fruit but i might even and again I'm, I'm trying not to attribute too many things to people who who you know haven't explicitly said this but like i'll think of someone like michael jones from inspiring philosophy and um in this case specifically we're talking about the resurrection obviously um and again you will go through, like i think he actually uses liconus criteria i think when he's going through different alternative explanations for the historical data we have uh versus the resurrection explanation but some of the debates and stuff that will go back and forth with him, it seems almost like, and maybe uh, I've, I've seen this kind of general idea, it's like, it's almost like Bayesianism isn't coming into play. So I think a lot of naturalists would just be like, yo, the prior is just so low. And I think, now you could debate this criteria, but I think one of maybe the unspoken criteria here might be, is just like, listen, The data just fits so well if it did happen, and that's my criteria for why I think it did happen. So I don't know if that's a consistency criteria, and maybe it's even a simplicity criterion, because usually if you have a natural explanation, you have to go on to talk about psychological phenomenon. You have to talk about the different historical factors that might be at play there. If the tomb was empty, if the tomb was not empty, you have to explain um, why this particular belief is formed. And that still might be more probable because the prior for the supernatural explanation is so low. But I, I don't know, maybe there is something to the idea of, hey, um, one of my the theoretical virtues I hold dearly is just this simplicity and consistency thing. I think there's problems because I think if you apply that to other miracle cases that are much, have less, uh, the sourcing is worse, The, the uh, it's, you're probably gonna come to similar conclusions. And it's, I do worry, so I, I'm glad we're having this conversation because I do think there's a lot of this p-hacking going on. It's like, how can we come to the set of constraints that makes it so the Christian explanation is reasonable um, and we can rule out as many other ones as possible? And um, I, I, I think I see that, and I guess I'm showing my bias here because I do think that's going on sometimes. Um, I think people will try to counteract that. I don't think people are necessarily trying to just... Um, I think they're trying to critically assess their faith for sure. And I think it's just difficult. It's like part of me would think as a general rule, like a heuristic, something that's kind of more simple, something that's more consistent. Yeah, I'm kind of uh, drawn for that as a general rule. I just don't think it's a universal rule. So it's kind of hard to to look at universal criteria that are going to apply in all cases. I think it's actually a lot harder than people
2: think. Yeah, no, that's uh. so when you talk about simplicity, I think that's a fair point, because simplicity is something you have to take into account, but Dale Allison, I know that Emerson and I both citing him a lot, because he, he, I have his book over there, it's a really great work, because he's pretty, he seems to try to be as fair as he can, and he's a Christian, but he's kind of agnostic on the, re- agnostic on the resurrection, he doesn't really take a position. But he says that like simplicity could be applied, but we could also say for Mormonism, right? Mormonism, we have witnesses who saw the angel. We also have eleven other witnesses who saw the physical plates. And so, if you're gonna do this, you have to say, well, Joseph was lying, and so he made up these plates and did the and out of kettles or whatever, and that's what these people saw. But then with the angel. He had to make them hallucinate so we're having to add on these other hypotheses there's no one hypothesis that explains everything and so it's, it's and so the hypothesis that best explains it is that joseph was a real prophet um but you know something i think christians also fall att- uh worried to is that they don't look at all the data so um, i would say that there's also minimal facts on against joseph that you have to take into account so the fact that joseph wasn't able to retranslate the 116 pages or that the book of abraham he translated wrong that's also relevant to your data and so if we have that data, then the prophet hypothesis doesn't look as good. So if I were going to be a skeptic on the resurrection, which I'm not, but if I were, I would try to do um, what I call a reverse minimal facts, uh, like that something that most, almost all critical scholars will accept uh, that would hurt the case of the resurrection. So this would be stuff like, you know, um, the earliest Christians, when they were telling Jesus fulfilling prophecy, they were re- retroactively doing this. Most of these weren't like, um things that messiah is supposed to do that looks like they're going back and trying to fit places so if jesus really was god filling all the prophecies it's weird that they would have to misplace these prophecies and do it retroactively whereas if he was a failed prophet and they have incognitive dissonance this makes sense or well you know jesus sounded like he, he thought the end of the world was coming he predicted that and it didn't happen um this is really weird if he was god incarnate but if this was some apocalyptic cult that went wrong and trying to make men's eat um that would make a lot more sense. And so if you have those as like minimal facts, take into account of the resurrection, well, maybe the God hypothesis isn't so great anymore, right? And so uh, I, I think you'd have to take that into account too.
1: All right, guys. So we're about an hour and 40 in. We didn't set a, a set start time or end time, but I do want to be respectful of people. But first of all, let me just ask, is there any things that maybe directions that you felt like you wanted to address super fa- fast and we can tr- get to an end and, and um, talk about anything they feel like should be addressed?
3: I think this question of divine psychologizing and the priors is really fascinating to me. Um, and I think that's something that we haven't really explored too much, but that I think is uh, really important in these contexts. So, I mean, I, I have some specific questions, I guess I could ask if we wanted to go that route about, you know, how we apply this to specific miracle claims, but that that might take us too far afield.
0: Uh, no, that, I'd be curious to, dive more into that, into the theological implications of that. But um, I will say just on the on just the general discussion about the argument for miracles, there's one thing that I would want to say to atheists and naturalists, and one thing I would want to say to theists. The thing that I would want to say to atheists and naturalists is to try to look more into um, epistemology that takes place sort of outside the context of philosophy of religion, and don't just try to build an epistemology in the hellish fires of a YouTube debate. And like trying to figure it because you end up with a ridiculous, constrained, like excessively skeptical epistemology because they're kind of gerrymandering their entire epistemology on the basis of what Christians are saying to them. And they're just kind of trying to slide out of everything. And they end up with this like ridiculous, totally implausible epistemology. But yeah, it's important to just think about these issues generally so you don't fall into saying silly things like it's irrational to believe anything purely on the basis of eyewitness testimony or something like that, which is a crazy thing to say. Um, It doesn't mean that all eyewitness testimony is equal or anything like that, but um, like I said, it's just something that you should look into rather than just kind of like defensively creating an epistemic system in response to the things that theists say. And what I would say to theists who want to put forward the argument for miracles is I would kind of want a straighter answer or a precise answer about how convincing am I supposed to find this exactly? Like whatever it is that I'm being shown Um, whether it's the miracle of Kalanda or any number of like, you know, third-hand stories that um, gets forwarded to you by your grandparents or something like, how exactly am I supposed to react to this? Like, should I drop to my knees and convert? Should I just reconsider? Should I like lower my credence in atheism maybe by 5% or 10% or 50% or, or what? Like, I just kind of want like a more precise answer of like, how do you expect me to, to react to this? <laughs> how much would this move the needle? Yeah, that's, no, I that's
3: really good. I, I like both of those points. And I think your, your first piece of advice is really important for everyone. I think the unfortunate part about these conversations is that you're dealing with people who have a very pick and choosy exposure to philosophical topics, right? And all of their positions in every area of philosophy have been formed in a super high stakes context. And I think that's really unfortunate. I I think if you want to engage with this stuff, honestly, and seriously, you should maybe back out of that at first and try to you know, form your positions based on what you find plausible and not what supports positions you like, pushes back on positions you don't like, you know, see what, see what the people who don't really have so much personally at stake in this debate actually think about it. I think that's advice for everyone. It's advice for me, certainly.
0: Yeah. You never want to get in the position of, oh, I can't accept this position because that might open the way to theism. It's like, well, then too bad. Like if you find that position plausible, then than too bad (laughs) i mean
1: in fairness like i wouldn't have dived as far as i have into philosophy and i'm nowhere close to being an expert if it wasn't for my christian beliefs so that's something i have to check in myself periodically like do a little personal like okay so that's why i'm having these conversations if it leads to theism and it changes my life uh uh, that's just
2: tough cookies it's the way it works it's like (laughs) so yeah no i think that's a good i like what you said about that because i think it adds a sense of honesty like I have a whole series of chapters in the book on Catholic miracles and I'm not Catholic. And I go into detail to say that, you know, it's not just that, you know, God heals people. And that's so it's, it's more so the idea that these this has theological implications, like people praying for saint intercession and being healed. It's like, well, I personally don't believe that saints can be interceded on stuff. So, you know, is it possible that God is just doing this out of mercy rather than the context? Then I say, well, but if God want to do this and to, to, to disaffirm this, then, then here's all the ways he could do this without having to make this. End. Or even um, I talk about one particular case of the Virgin Mary appearing in Egypt. Uh, Dale Allison also mentions this case very well, uh, very extensively documented, thou- tens of thousands of eyewitnesses, photographs, all, uh, lots of investigation by the government officials, all this stuff. And I say, I really don't know what to think of this. And I, as a Protestant, don't believe that Mary was assumed into heaven or immaculately immaculately conceived. And part of me actually wants to disbelieve this because there's actually a lot of stake. In fact, if you look at what the Pope declared in 1950, ex cathedra, which means, you know, under dogma, under the word of God inerrant, he said anyone who rejects these doctrines of Mary, let him have the wrath of St. Paul and St. Peter on Judgment Day. And so if that's right, and this is good evidence that these doctrines are true and I'm rejecting it, I could be in a lot of trouble, and there's a lot at stake for me to to do that. So I have lots of reasons to not want that to be true. But you know, do we have to go where the evidence leads, and do I have to do that? And, this, and the second one that I'll end on is to say, what at what point do we epistemically say I don't know what the explanation is? Do we always d- does the um, doubt in America always need to give some kind of alternative they think to explain it, or can they just say I honestly don't think any of the alternatives are plausible, and I still don't have an explanation? Um, do we have to say that if we don't think that all terms are plausible, that therefore theism is more plausible, or can we really just say, I honestly have no idea. So that's something I think is interesting too.
1: Yeah. Epistemic humility is something we have to keep in, uh, keep in check too. I have to check that for sure. But, um. All right, guys, so if there wasn't anything else, I think that's a great stopping point. I'm hoping uh, either you guys or so Narset in, in the future, we can pick up some of the thread slot here. Maybe we can assess some of our own thinking, watch the video, maybe people will respond. So hopefully this will start some cool stuff. So
0: and We um, have to we'll, get it so there's not just one Christian who's... No, I know.
3: <laughs> <laughs> I was I was going to say props to you, Caleb, for this. I, I appreciate all the attention. Against
0: yeah, we need more balance
1: people. next time. No, no, and- it's good to hear other theistic perspectives, too, because again, I know that's not the only theistic perspective.
2: On the table, yeah. No, I, ha- I had four. I had three or four of the theists in our group chat. Just none of them were able to make it, so it's okay. But none of them were as bold as you. No, well, is, I don't think this is confident. This
1: but... is my way of unwinding. So the more often I can do this, the better it is for me. So you guys just let me know, um or any of the theists <laughs> who are uh, in the chat, so or in the uh, messenger group, so. All right, I guess we'll end it there, guys. And uh, I don't think I mentioned before, Jonathan, so it was nice meeting you. Yes, Um,
2: likewise.
1: Emerson, Caleb, good to hear from you. And uh, talking, I don't think we've ever talked in person before. So, well, talked face-to-face online, I guess, before. So have a great day, guys, and we'll end it there.